Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. My name is Charlie Bing. I pastor Burleson Bible Church, been there for 10 years, graduated from here in 1984 and 1991. I also recently started a ministry called Grace Life Ministries, which is dedicated to making disciples of grace around the world and have some projects uh, going in there as much as I can devote my time and resources to as a pastor. Good to be with you today. Good to be with you today in the Grace Fellowship. Um, it wasn't until after I graduated from seminary that I found out that the reason a sem- seminary is uh, such a great repository of knowledge is because the students keep bringing it in and they don't take it out. Is that right? Maybe you'll find out when you graduate. Today we're going to talk about uh, an issue related to assurance. Really, uh, assurance, uh, the same issue I'll be speaking about at the conference next week, uh, but how to ground Christians in the grip of grace is what we call it, or moving Christians from doubt to discipleship, and the importance of the issue of assurance to Christian growth and maturity. Now, I'll just kind of talk some things through here, and uh, perhaps if you want to respond afterwards uh, with questions or discussion, we can do that. I came across a little article. Um, don't know who it was by, but it, it says, you know you're not spiritual when. Let me read some of these to you. You know you're not spiritual when you're asked to pray in church and you begin with, Now I lay me down to sleep. You know you're not spiritual when you have your quiet time while watching Monday night football. (laughs) When you think that to keep your lights shining means to pay your electric bill. You, You know you're not spiritual when you don't remember where you bought your last Bible, but the cover is embossed with the Gideon's emblem. Um... My favorite is, you know you're not spiritual when you think that the Apostles' Creed is the name of the prize fighter who fought Rocky. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Let me add a more serious one. You know you're not spiritual when you're not sure if you're saved. Because the assurance of our salvation not only is the essence of our saving faith, but it's also, I think, the very bedrock and foundation for our spiritual growth and maturity. I really believe there's a crisis of assurance in churches at large. Maybe not at Dallas Seminary, but in churches at large across our country. I see it wherever I go and the people I talk to. And there's a lot of fallout because of that. Um, I call it an assurance deficit disorder. The churches are suffering from a severe case of assurance deficit disorder, ADD. Um, One pastor I talked to not long ago told me he thinks that he just took this church and he was visiting people in their homes. And he said... You know, I think 40% of the people that I'm talking to in their homes are telling me that they're, they're basing their, assur- their assurance of salvation on the fact that they're pretty good people. And as you know, as long as when we get our eyes off of Christ and put on anything that we do, it's impossible to have absolute assurance of salvation. Um, most people will say something like that in many, many churches. That's not unusual at all. It's a, it's a common problem. I remember the pastor's conference we had last year. One pastor said in a testimony, he said, I've been a Christian 15 years and sure of it one. I know another fellow at the, uh, in this area whose only reason for going to seminary was to find out if he was saved. That's the only reason he went. 
I see that there are some people today, and I think the reason behind a lot of the confusion is because there are many teachers who are teaching that doubts are good and not harmful. I'm starting from a different position. I'm saying that doubts are harmful. They teach that you can be 99% sure that you're saved. And I don't know what that means. And I think it, it drove home to me um, this past week when, um, when I had a question about that. And I, used, I found myself using that very same expression. Somebody asked me about uh, these dissertations, and, and um, they were offering to uh, make a copy available to each person who went to the pastor's conference. And I said, well, I better make sure that that's okay with Bob. Bob Wilkin, the head of GES. And uh, they said, oh, well, do you think there'd be a problem? I said, no, I'm, I'm 99% sure. I said, in fact, I'm 99.9% sure. Well, let's go ahead and do it. No, we better not copy them until I call them. So what is 99.9.999% sure? What is that? It means you're not sure. <laughs> the bottom line is you're not sure, and you're not going to go ahead and proceed on the basis of something you're not sure about. And so I, I didn't call, but when I, I mean, I didn't proceed until I called him. When I called him, Bob says, oh, sure, fine. Once I had the authoritative word of Bob, I was sure. So anything that falls short of the authoritative word is unsure, and we rest in the grounds of uncertainty. Um, the Puritans used to call those who believed hopeful converts and I find that today, they don't use that term, but there are many people who would call those who are saved hopeful converts. 99% sure, but not all the way. We kind of have a traditional church culture where I think that this is allowed to propagate and uh, where people's works are viewed and inspected with the idea that they can be manipulated based on their performance or lack of it. Um, and, and salvation can be dangled in front of them as some kind of parrot based on their works. Uh, for example, uh, we, they want to motivate to good behavior, but for the, by the wrong motivation. I was listening to the radio about a year ago, and I heard a fellow who's a well-known financial resource counselor. He was on the radio, and he was, and he was answering questions. You probably know what I'm talking about already. And uh, the caller said, our church doesn't support our pastor full-time. What can we do about it, or what should I tell the church? And he said, if your church doesn't support your pastor full-time so that he can live on that wage, then those people in your church are probably not saved. It's that kind of pronouncement that tries to accomplish a good thing with the wrong motives, the motives of fear and guilt, dangling that salvation. And then we develop this traditional church culture where we, where we pay, and I'm not talking about <clears throat> Dallas grads necessarily, but you know the culture we live in, where we pay an evangelist to come in at the beginning of the week and take people's salvation away from them. And then give so that he can give it back to them at the end of the week and impress people with his statistics and his newsletter. And so people have gotten conditioned by this person coming in and stirring them up and, and asking the kind of questions that makes them doubt their salvation. Are you going to church? Are you sharing your faith? Are you giving your money? Then you must not be saved. So at the end of the week, after 17 verses of the Sweet Potato Song, they get a good response. <clears throat> you know what the Sweet Potato Song is? You're looking at me blank. Just as a yam? You ever heard that? <laughs> And so we've developed this church culture as a whole, which uses fear and guilt to manipulate people to good things, but for wrong reasons. And then this whole focus on numbers that we have and the pressure of numbers and, and increasing uh, the church roles. Um, one of the favorite expressions, a Baptist preacher told me this, so I'm not picking on anybody. A Baptist preacher said one of their favorite words is, how many jab? You ever hear that word? We had a revival last week, how many jab? And so they use that with one another. 
In fact, uh, statistics show, studies have been done, uh, statistics show that Texas has more Baptists than people. Did you know that? <laughs> it's been proven statistically. I saw a cartoon where a bride and a groom were standing before the minister, and uh, he, obviously in a, in a wedding ceremony, and uh, his, the cartoon's words from the minister were, I think I do would be a more appropriate response than whatever. <laughs> so we have a lot of people, I think, joining the church roles on the basis of a whatever or a grunt or, a, you know, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Well, yeah, okay, welcome to the fellowship kind of a thing. And so we're not being discerning on that end either. So um, one thing the Bible is clear about is that we can know. First John 5.13, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. And I'm just amazed at the number of people who will interpret that verse the same way a Jehovah's Witness would interpret that verse. Jehovah's Witness lady sat in my living room some time ago. I invite them in. I like to talk with them, but I don't tell them who I am because they'll run the other way. Pastors are demon-possessed and Christians are out to persecute them. So you don't tell them that. I invited her in and I started asking her questions about her religion. And one of the things I said, are you absolutely sure that you would go to heaven or that you're saved? No, not absolutely sure. I hope I am. Well, how will you know? Well, I can't really know till the end. Well, what about this verse? And I turned to 1 John 5.13 in her Bible, which says the same thing. And I said, what about this verse? These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. And she said, oh, well, that word, now she's bluffing, I could tell. She said, oh, well, that word know, I think, means uh, just with hope so, or uh, I feel com kind of confident about. And I said, oh, well, wait a minute, and let me get my Greek New Testament. <laughs> And so I still, she did, still didn't catch on that I was a pastor or anything. I went and got my Greek New Testament in the other room, and I came back, and I flipped it open. I said, well, the word is oida, and oida is just the word to know. You know that you know you know. We know anything. We know two plus two is four. She said, oh, I never saw that. Would you teach me Greek? I've always wanted to know Greek. <laughs> never had a Christian ask me that in my entire career. Had a Jehovah's Witness ask me that, and that's not an indictment. The Bible teaches that assurance of salvation is the birthright of every believer. It is the birthright of every believer, though a believer may lose their assurance. And the only basis for the assurance of salvation is rooted in the theology of grace. The theology of grace. Now, to determine whether a Christian, I'm speaking mainly of Christians who have lost their salvation, lost their, <laughs> lost their assurance. <clears throat> to determine that, you're familiar with the diagnostic questions. I've found nothing better than to ask people, are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? or that you're saved, that your sins are forgiven, or that you have eternal life. No matter what their answer is, the second question is even more important, as you know. If you, God, you were to stand before God and God said to you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say to him? That will tell you exactly what a person is trusting in. The weirdest answer I ever got was from a lady who was an alcoholic, a belligerent alcoholic, an arrogant alcoholic. She said, I'll tell him to get out of the way, I'm coming through, and I'll push the door down. But, <laughs> but those are the questions. Based on those two questions, you can tell if a person has assurance and what they're basing that assurance on. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the fallout from a lack of assurance. First of all, a lack of assurance uh, inhibits growth in a Christian. It inhibits growth in a Christian. Some in, in some more than others. But how can a person grow to full maturity if they're guessing whether God has accepted them or not? If their whole relationship with God is based on performance. If someone says, I've adopted you, if, if a father says to a son, I've adopted you in my family and you're my child as long as you obey. Well, how can that person ever have the absolute assurance and acceptance to live in that family and grow up to maturity, thinking that at any moment, for any 
particular reason based on their performance, they could lose their standing in the family. And I really believe that that model of adoption, by the way, in the Bible is given to us for a reason. And the whole family is used as a paradigm to explain our relationship with God. And I think that somebody ought to do a master's thesis or a doctoral dissertation about the family and how it is used as a paradigm or model in the Bible for us understanding how we relate to God, God relates to us, and marriage as well. I mean, look at, I, I'm going into another sermon here, but look at how that family is used right all through the Bible as a way of explaining God's relationship to us and us to God. God gave us the family on earth, which only elevates its importance on the human level so that we can understand him. And children gain their perspective of their, of their heavenly father through their earthly father, and their view of themselves through their earthly father, etc., etc. And, uh, and I could go on and on about that. Y'all take that up sometime when you have time, all right? I haven't had time. But doubt of acceptance cancels the motivation for assurance. I wonder if there's anything connected there between that and the fact that so many neglect to go on to a life of committed discipleship in our churches across America. That so many just go for their Sunday religion and hearing the evangelistic messages or the shallow messages and neglect to go into deep discipleship. I wonder if it's that. Why should I give so much to God when I don't know, in the end, if I'm going to make it at all? That would seem a logical conclusion to me, and I'm certain there are others who must reason that way. The second fallout of ADD, or assurance deficit disorder, is it weakens our witness. Needless to say, if you're not sure that you're going to heaven, I wouldn't like to pass that on to somebody else. Prof. Hendricks, who taught us that uh, you can't impart what you don't possess. When I was a college student, I used to sell cookware, pots and pans, on, in, during my summer break. And, uh, man, they told us that this was the world's best cookware. There was none better. Lifetime guarantee. And I was excited. I went out and sold cookware. Well, the next summer, the company changed hands. Different company. And this company comes in with a different design and says, this is the world's best cookware. And all of a sudden, I'm confused, as naive as I was. I thought that was the world's best cookware. Now, this is the world's best cookware. had a little bit less enthusiasm and less motivation that summer to sell that brand of cookware. So what is the message that we have anyway? The gospel is good news. It's not pulp fiction. It's not tabloid speculation. It's good news. And we have to have the conviction, the solid conviction, that it saves us, and we can tell people that they're saved, and we can tell them that I'm saved. Or else, what do we really have to tell people? I wonder if there's a relationship here between the fact that we've garbled this gospel and taken away the foundations for assuring people of their salvation with the fact that only 10, less than 10% of your people in the average church are active in winning people to Christ or sharing their faith on a regular basis. There could be a relationship there. Third thing about the fallout, it undermines ministry. It will steal the enthusiasm for ministry or... It will help. It will cause people to minister for wrong motives. In other words, to earn brownie points. They have. They may be actually motivated to minister and sacrifice and devote themselves in the ministry because they feel like this is their way of earning God's acceptance. I think that would be a logical outcome as well. And so the focus of ministry becomes selfish and not other-centered. We minister with confidence when we know for sure that we're saved. If we don't, we minister in an unsteady ministry. The difference is the difference between the Vietnam War and the Gulf War. Think about that. One mired in uncertainty, one based on bold confidence. That's the difference.
between assurance and non-assurance, assurance deficit disorder. What about some causes of assurance deficit disorder? And I don't mean to, uh, I'm not a psychologist, and I'm not using that term psychologically understand, and if anybody here suffers from ADD, I'm not at all making fun of it. I've just found it an easy way to remember this, assurance deficit disorder, okay? The Bible teaches that, that Christians can fall from grace. Now, what does that mean? Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, Paul says to the Galatians that you've fallen from grace. You've become estranged from Christ. The word means to nullify or to render powerless or to become estranged from, to be released from. It's used in Romans chapter 7 verse 2 about marriage and uh, the marriage obligation. If, some, if one mate dies, the other person is released from obligation to that law uh, of marriage. Um, Paul is not saying there, as our Arminian friends would say, that you can lose your salvation, of course. Paul is saying that you've gone from one system to the other. You've reverted from the grace system that has saved you, which is what the whole book of Galatians is about, to the work system now, that you want to keep the law and become circumcised. You've fallen from grace, and so Christ has rendered power. The moment you, you leave grace and turn to your own performance or self-efforts, you're on your own from that point on. Christ can't help you. You're on your own. And that's the danger of going into a work system. That's what Paul's telling them. So the Galatians had every reason then to go from there into a position where many Christians today find themselves doubting their salvation. Let me give you some reasons why I think people doubt their salvation. First of all, they don't have salvation. That's the easiest one, right? Not everybody who says they're saved is saved. They doubt it because they don't have it. And that would make a lot of sense. But I'm not really talking about them today. You have to examine them with those two questions and start with the gospel and those people. What about somebody who's genuinely saved? and yet doubts are salvation. It could be uh, that they've been confused about the gospel itself. Confused about the gospel itself and its content. Jesus said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, and when he warned the Corinthians about those who come and teach a different Jesus. And I can see that somebody could be persuaded into a cult, or an ism, or a wasm, or whatever, into a view of a Christ in his work that was not sufficient. And they could logically become, follow that trail till they're confused about their salvation. You and I know that good evangelical Bible-believing Christians can get into cults. And um, in fact, they, they say that the, the Mormons are recruiting most of their people in America from evangelical Christians. Okay? And at the same time, they can undermine their assurance. But not only confused about the gospel's content, confused about the gospel's condition. The gospel's condition is believe. In John, that verb is used 98 times as the condition for salvation. Believe, only believe. Faith alone in Christ alone. And when we use, and people are saved under, under different language that is confusing about asking Jesus into your heart, giving your life to Christ, surrendering everything to him as Lord, um, etc., etc. The confusing, unbiblical language that we choose, and when they constantly hear that, they could begin to doubt their own salvation. So there can be confusion about the gospel message. Another reason that people can suffer from ADD is persistent sin in their life. You and I know that when a Christian walks in sin, they walk in darkness, they walk in guilt, and they feel the effects of guilt. The effects of guilt is to cause an estrangement between us and God. To turn from the light, as he is in the light, and to walk in the darkness is to walk in your shadow. And when you walk in your shadow, you stumble. And when people walk in sin, then they can they can doubt their salvation, become confused, their feelings. It's like throwing sand into an engine. They've thrown all kinds of stuff into their conscience, and their conscience is going to condemn them, and they may interpret those feelings in the wrong way theologically. 
Another reason I think that uh, Christians can suffer from lack of assurance is a lack of, uh, oh, a vulnerable personality. This is a really big one, I think. I think people, some people have a personality that is just vulnerable to, um, and keeps them in uncertainty. They live in uncertainty. Perhaps you know somebody like this, an introspective person. See, the person that told me that they came to seminary for the only reason to discover if they were saved, that person told me, I asked him, I said, are you an introspective person? He said, I can map out my whole psyche for you. Now, see, I don't even know I have a psyche. That's the difference. <laughs> That's the difference. But an introspective person knows everything about the way he thinks and feels. An introspective person is always asking themselves, well, did I really, am I really feeling this way? And they would say, did I really believe, for example? I know people like that. This person fit that mold. That's why I asked him that second question. I have a lady in my church. She calls me about every six months. You still like me? She's like this. She lives by her emotions and introspection. She's a poet. But see, poets are introspective. We need poets in life. Do you still love me? Do you still like me? <clears throat> so an introspective person can have trouble with that. An emotional person, somebody who lives by their emotions. They ask the question, do I feel saved? Because they're used to living by their feelings rather than objective truth. An obsessive person might say, did I do enough? The obsessive personalities may have had trouble getting saved at the beginning. Did I do enough? A perfectionist personality would say, did I do it right? Now, I'm a recovering perfectionist, all right? Um, and you know, when I got saved in 1973, that was part of my problem, is I would read one gospel account that says, you need to surrender everything to Jesus as Lord. I'd say, okay, I surrender everything. I can't think of anything else. Then I would read another account that would say, you need to humble yourself before God. And so I'd read that, and then it's, okay, Lord, I'm humble. And I'd get down on my face, in my bed, and I'm humble, I'm humble. Then I'd read somebody else's testimony. They said, you have to cry and, and uh, repent and be convicted. And so I would I'd work up the tears. And, Am I doing it right? It was very, very confusing for me at first. Another personality type might be uh, the paranoid or suspicious person. Um, is it really true would be their question. They could come to, to ask that question even after they're saved. Person with low self-esteem would ask the question, "Am I really accepted?" They just have trouble believing God would accept them because their parents rejected them, or they've been rejected all their lives. That was an issue with me, I think, too, because uh, my father's uh, treatment. I had a lot of problems understanding that a heavenly father. Here we go with this model, this paradigm that a heavenly father could accept me so easily on the basis of grace instead of performance when I always lived under performance at home. I'm not a psychologist or the son of a psychologist, but now, we'll read one of Frank Minner's articles on Lordship Salvation and its damages that we printed in our journal. Psychologists will tell you that your feelings determine a lot of your beliefs and behavior. And that's just, that's just pretty much a fact. And I think that you have to sometimes look at a person's personality. Another reason I think Christians suffer from lack of assurance is because of a lack of follow-through. We don't have a way of moving them on into discipleship and into the commitments that help them to appreciate grace, understand grace, and appropriate grace in their everyday lives. That's why the book of Romans follows the book of John. See, the book of John is nothing but salvation, except for the middle section there. It talks about discipleship. But all of that follows very, very clear teachings on salvation. And then we have that middle section of John, and we have the book of Romans, which says, This is the gospel, because this is the gospel. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And all the theology of Romans, based on the gospel, turns into practical exhortations to live out the life 
that the gospel teaches us by the grace of God. Respond to grace and let your life be a thank you note. When people begin to respond to grace, they begin to appropriate grace, to live in grace, to appreciate grace. And nothing, I think, will confirm it for them more, their, their, their salvation more, as, than as they move on further down the road. A little girl fell out of bed and her mom said, what's the matter? She said, I think I stayed too close to where I got in. I think that's a problem with a lot of Christians. They stay too close to where they get in. What's the cure for assurance deficit disorder? In a, in a word, it's the grace life. It's learning what salvation by grace is and learning what it means to live by grace. And I think that we could prevent a lot of Christians from going into this confusion of assurance if we preventatively address the issues of grace and the gospel ahead of time. So, first of all, under the cure, let me talk first of all about preventative things and then curative or corrective things. See, a lot of us, a lot of us take uh, uh, Christians with problems. We meet them at the bottom of the cliff with 1 John 1, 9. In fact, we program them to fall off the cliff. Now, now that you're a Christian, you should know that you're going to sin. And that's true. I'm not arguing with that. And so you need to know 1 John 1, 9 because if you confess your sins, he'll forgive you your sins. And so what we're doing is we're saying, now you're going to fall off the cliff and I'll meet you at the bottom with 1 John 1, 9. But what we need to do is tell him Romans 6 at the top of the cliff that you're dead to sin and you're under a new master. Now serve that new master. And, you'll, and in Romans chapter 8, you'll have a new power to live for Christ. Let's meet him at the top with Romans 6 and 8. And maybe not so many will fall off the cliff. Let's meet him at the top with a clear gospel presentation. That's the first thing you can do is make the gospel clear for him in its content and its condition. I think part of that means that you don't... We, today in our gospel preaching and sharing and evangelism, we can no longer assume that people understand where we are coming from if you're from a traditional background. We can no longer assume that we mean the same thing when we say God or sin or grace or faith or any of these things. We need to explain ourselves more and more in this increasingly secular postmodern society. 72% of Christians reject, and 72% of the population rejects the concept of absolutes and absolute truth. You need to be aware of that when you witness and as you make the gospel clear. So be careful of your terms, by the way. When, when you say believe, you need to explain that. When you say that Jesus is the Son of God, you need to explain that. The cults call Jesus the Son of God too, but they mean something different. That's why I get into the habit of saying Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son. Just to be clear when I'm talking to people. He's God the Son. In fact, I like that term a lot better. Um, there's a story told about a fellow who's encountering somebody on the street, and he says, are you born again? The guy said, no, I've only had one mother all of my life. No, no, I don't mean that. Have you been saved? Well, I was drowning one time, and uh, somebody rescued me from the water, so I guess, yeah, I've been saved. No, 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 I mean, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Ugh! And so on, and so on, and so on. We need to be real careful about the terms that we use. I was uh, called not long ago by a lady in my church. She's going to a Bible study from a, a woman teacher on video. probably know who this is, too. She's going to the Bible study by this person on video, and this person pretty militant in their teaching that you have to commit yourself entirely to the Lord in order to be saved. And she called me and she said, you know, I was in that Bible study, and, and she said, 
I left that Bible study wondering whether I was saved or not. But then on the way home, I remembered what you taught, because I taught a series on the gospel and assurance not long ago. I remembered what you taught. That's what I'm talking about when I say preventative. Most of my counseling I do from the pulpit. I see very few people in, in my office. I do it from the pulpit. Get people started on the right track, staying on the right track, and you'll have less in your office. Another preventative thing we can do is motivate people by grace and not by performance. Keep the cart behind the horse. Don't get them mixed up. Don't get one in front of the other. Works are a consequence of salvation, not a condition for salvation. They're a result of salvation, not a requirement for salvation. That's what Ephesians 2, 2 8 through 10 teaches. We always quote 8 and 9, but we don't quote 10. And 10 says that works should follow, should follow salvation by grace through faith. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, teaches the same thing. It says it clearer. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. The grace of God comes and appears, and then it teaches us. The grace of God doesn't teach unbelievers. The grace of God saves unbelievers. The grace of God teaches or motivates believers. So we need to teach people that the Christian life is just a big thank you note to God. And the more we elevate grace and bring them to an appreciation of grace, the more they'll be able to live their lives as an appreciation. And yet so many times we get into motivating people by guilt and manipulation. Well, if you're really a Christian, you would share your faith. You're not fishing. You're not following Jesus, meaning you're not saved. I've got a quote from somebody in my dissertation that says that. Good little boys eat their broccoli, or, or Christian boys eat their broccoli, or whatever. I have a, a friend, his, his nanny held up the picture of that famous woodcut of David holding Goliath's head up. Seen that? She showed him this picture, and she said, this is what happens to little boys who don't eat their crust. <laughs> it's effective motivation, but I tell you what, you keep motivating people like that, they'll get burned out or drop out. They'll become bitter against the church, and when you knock on their door to talk to them about Christ, they'll slam it in your face, because they don't want anything to do with that kind of legalism. That's where legalism comes from. Performance. How does Paul motivate people in the New Testament? Dangle their salvation in front of them? You won't find one verse that does. Paul says, now that you're in Christ. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. Paul says, you've been adopted. You're no longer slaves, you're sons. John says, my little children, I speak to you. All through the scriptures in the New Testament, we are motivated on the basis of who we are, not what we do. Third thing, preventatively, is to move them on to discipleship. I kind of said that really. Motivate them by grace. Move them on to discipleship. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior Jesus. 2 Peter 3.18. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Another good verse. Maybe we'll read that one. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And so we move people on to discipleship based on the relationship that they have with Jesus Christ. The more they get to know him, the more they'll be motivated to live for him. And the more their fear of... Uh, of hell and the lack of assurance will begin to disappear from them. The more they know about him and his trustworthiness. I read the newspaper or Time magazine 
not long ago about Michael Jackson had this tremendous fear of flying. So TWA took him on board one of their jets and introduced him to all the instrument panels and everything and showed him all the safety features on the plane and just kind of walked him through the whole thing so to the point where he feels confident now about flying. The more people know Jesus and his love and acceptance, his grace, his promises, his truthfulness, the more trustworthy he becomes to them and the more they'll doubt whether God really accepts them, the less they'll doubt. The, more, the less they'll doubt whether God accepts them, the less they'll doubt their salvation. And so the steps of discipleship, very first important step when we make disciples is baptize them, right? We don't emphasize that enough, perhaps, but there's something about baptism, I think, helps confirm to a person mentally, because what the body does physically, I think, confirms to a person mentally in their feelings. Your feelings follow your actions, you know? It's not like the guy who's leaning against a tree with an axe, and somebody said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm waiting to work up a sweat. <laughs> your feelings follow your actions. And I think baptism is a very important step for people because it makes them do something tangible. And they're not to base their assurance on that act, but I think it helps confirm to them and feel more saved, even though they should be basing it on the objective. And then teach them is the next step in discipleship. Baptism also means that you're identifying them with the church and um, enveloping them in the church and then teaching them to observe all that. Christ has commanded us. And so the whole process of teaching and growing in the teachings. Witnessing is an important step, I think. The more a person shares their faith, I think the more that will become confirmed to them. I had a lady tell me just the other day, she's, she's in a Bible study with a bunch of Arminians, and they're all telling her that you can lose your salvation. And she's a brand new Christian, and she's defending grace and the doctrines of grace that God has accepted her. And she says, you know, the more I have to defend myself, the stronger I'm being convicted of the truth of this. And when we have to defend this, we grow in our strength and in our convictions. I don't know what it was, but when I was a new Christian, I, I went back and forth. I believed, but yet there were, I, I believed to the point where I know I was saved, but yet I felt it was presumptuous to tell people I was saved. I felt it was kind of arrogant that I could tell people that God has accepted me or something like that. And so uh, I had a lot of turmoil in my soul. And um, one day I was at a church and there's a Christian concert going on and uh, one of the artists I went up to greet him afterwards and he grabbed my hand he pulled me over and he said good to meet you Charlie are you are you saved now I was on the line I had to say something yes or no that kind of I had to have quick response to this guy I said yeah I'm saved from that point on I've never doubted never squirmed never been ashamed to say it uh, or anything if there's something about your feelings that follows your actions so that's what we could do preventatively. How about correctively? First of all, deal with the specific issue. If a Christian is living in sin and has doubts because of that, you're going to have to deal with the issues of forgiveness. They may feel that they've sinned such that God could never forgive them, that they've gone beyond the bounds of his grace. And there's verses that you can use to show them that grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, and that Christ has forgiven us all of our sins. And by the way, that's past, present, and future. All of your sins were future when Jesus died on the cross. You didn't do anything that surprised him. When he said he'd forgive you, he died for you when you were a sinner. Romans 5, 8, Colossians 2, Romans chapter 5 at the end. Romans chapter 3, no, Romans chapter 5 at the end, 19 and 20. Grace abounds. Deal with the specific issue. Another thing is helpful, of course, is to take them through the standard passages. 1 John 5, verses 11 through 13. Who has life? Well, he who has the Son. Um, how can you know? Well. If you have Christ, you have Christ. You believe. 
or John chapter 5, verse 24, you can use the, uh, I think it goes, uh, he who hears my word believes on him who sends me has eternal life. So what do you have in the present? Eternal life. Will not come into judgment. What will happen in the future? I won't be judged, but it's passed from death to, life, death to life. What happened in the past? So you can ask those questions from John chapter 5, verse 24. Romans chapter 8, of course, big chapter. You ever notice those questions in verses 31 through 39? Romans chapter 8. What do you think the purpose of those questions are anyway? They pound assurance home with a sledgehammer. Four questions Paul asks, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Obviously, what's the answer he expects? Nobody. If he didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Why would God deliver his son and then take something back from us? He's going to follow through with his whole program. Verse 33, the second question. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to charge you with anything? It's God who justifies. God's already pronounced the verdict, not guilty. God's verdict stands. There's no double jeopardy in God's courtroom. Third question in verse 34. Who is he who condemns? Who's going to condemn you with anything? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Christ died for our sins. He rose again. The sacrifice was acceptable. He now intercedes for us. Talk about a dream team. Jesus has never lost a case. He makes intercession for us. The third question is nobody can condemn you. Fourth question in verse 35. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Basically, what he goes on to say is, no body, no time, no way, no place. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Those four questions, use those on people. That pounds assurance home. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. After dealing with the specific issue, point them to Christ. Really, that's the bottom line of this whole debate and issue, is point them to Christ. People will not have assurance if, if they're looking within or looking at their works we only have assurance by looking at Jesus Christ. We have to get them outside of themselves or anything that is subjective in nature to what is objective in nature, and that is the person of Jesus Christ and the promises that he has made in his word. If I, on a beautiful moonlit night, I'm looking at the moon in a pool of water, and somebody comes along and throws a rock so that it is rippling so hard I can no longer see the moon. In order to assure myself that the moon is still there, what do I do? I look at the moon, not the reflection. Our feelings, our works, our sin or lack of it, our sin or our performance or lack of it are all reflections of Jesus Christ. And if we put our eyes on those, they can be stirred up. But if we want assurance, we have to take our eyes off of those things and put them on Jesus Christ, the objective Son of God who has promised us eternal life. So the bottom line is, point them to Christ. John 5, 11 through 13, someone said, does not say, these happy feelings I give to you that you may know that you have eternal life. It does not say, these fruitful works I give to you that you may know that you have eternal life. It says, he who has the Son has the life. And the hymn reads, when darkness hides his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's so true. It's in Christ alone that we have our assurance. I was 
teach at Laterno University. I teach the Bible there. We're pretty much regular cross-section of society, which means about 70% unsaved people and uh, barely churched people. Not long ago, I, the wonderful thing about teaching there is I get to teach things like the Gospel of John for three, four hours, then testimony. I get to teach in the Book of Romans and then testimony. I get people saved every time I teach a New Testament class. I was teaching through John one day, showing through John how he uses the word believe 98 times as a condition for salvation. She came up, this girl named Kathy came up to me at the break, Karen, came up to me at break and she said, uh, do you mean to tell me that uh, all I have to do is believe and I can know that I'm saved? I said, well, don't take my word for it. What does John say? Well, he seems to be saying that all you have to do is believe in order to be saved. Well, what do you think? I think it's true. I said, well, <laughs> so then what? She said, well, I've been living all of my life carrying this great burden around, wondering whether I'm saved or not, because I knew that there was sin in my life and things that weren't exactly right. And I've doubted all of my life, and you're saying that I could know for sure. And her eyes were lit up, and her life was changed. And that kind of freedom is why I'm committed to the ministry of grace and proclaiming the gospel of grace and the grace life and making disciples of grace. That kind of freedom that it brings a person. Questions, comments, discussion? Well, if you, the question is, uh, how can you know for sure if your heart is deceitful and you, uh, psychologically speaking, can't even be sure what you know? And my answer to that is, then what are we doing here? What are we doing here? You're undermining the whole epistemological base for uh, ministry, theological study, or anything. How can we know anything? Let's go home. I'm not doing this because I'm 99% sure. Listen, to say that you're 99% sure, to really be honest with you, you're saying you're unsure. That's the flip side of that. All right? I don't care. And, and my question is, why 99%? Why not 98%? Okay, why not 97%? Okay, why not 96%? Why did you pick 99%? Because it sounds so pious. But on that 1%, we're balancing an awful lot of theology. But see, they, they have to keep that 1% in order to make their theology work. That's why they don't want to say 100%, because their theological system won't allow it. But that's, that's not real honest. I think really they're saying, I know I'm saved, but I just don't want to say that. I'm just going to say 99%. But back to the psychological issue, we get in big trouble, I think, whenever we try to psychologize faith, um, which is a little bit different issue from what you're asking, I realize. But um, there are so many people say, well, you believe with your head, but not your heart and not your will, and uh, I don't find that in the Bible. It just tells people to believe. They believe or they don't believe, and when we try to start psychologizing this and dividing it into compartments, it's a dead-end street, and you get into all kinds of problems. But uh, if somebody's not only 99% sure that they're saved, well, how sure of you there's a God? 99%? They would have to say the same thing based on their, their logic. How sure are you this is God's Word? 99%. Boy, that person shouldn't be teaching here. <laughs> That's against the doctrinal statement. All right? I have big problems with that kind of reasoning. question is uh, about the role of the mind, will, and emotion in believing. And uh, what I find is that the Bible doesn't make those distinctions. It doesn't make those distinctions. I addressed that in my dissertation. The model that I used to also uh, buy and use is this three 
or tripartite model of mind, will, and emotion, or in the Latin, the theologians used to call it notitia, mind, a census, uh, am I getting this right? A census is emotion or agreement, and fiducia, which is trust or will. But fiducia is just another word for faith, and so that becomes a tautology. When you add fiducia in there, you're saying your faith is what saves you in the end anyway. And the Bible doesn't divide it like that. It just talks about believing or not. You either believe something or you don't. And uh, belief as a persuasion that something is true, so that, logically speaking, I should act on it. Yes, there should be a follow-through. Uh, personally, I believe that every Christian uh, has fruit in his life or her life. Um, <clears throat> but the problem is, is that there are so many people who want to see it, who want to quantify it. You can't do that. It's impossible to quantify it. Sometimes it's impossible to see it. And then sometimes it's very relative. I had somebody of a lordship persuasion teach me here in a class, and uh, he was counseling with somebody from the Dallas Cowboys. Okay, you would know his name if I said it, but I'll leave his name out of it. He doesn't teach any longer. He was counseling somebody in the Dallas Cowboys. He says one of the Cowboys came into him, and, and uh, one of his problems was he slept with 300 women a year. All right? That, <laughs> that will cause some problems. Well, he got saved. He was led to the Lord. He got saved. He comes back a year later and he says, man, I'm doing so great. Oh, really? Tell me why. Well, I've only slept with 75 women this year. For one thing, it's all relative, isn't it? Did the guy bear fruit or not? Did he bear fruit every time he said no to the other 225 women? You see? It's all relative. But you look at his life. If John MacArthur looks at his life, he's going to be condemned forever. <laughs> Probably. Because of sleeping with 75 women. Now, this is an example of a lordship person. That, that I heard. Okay? So uh, I believe that there is change that happens in a person's life. I think the danger comes trying to quantify it. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.